we're going to look at uh, this morning as we start this new series. Um, as um, Dan's already said, Drawing the Curtain Aside is this series. Can we have the slides up? Thank you, James. Okay. There is the next four weeks. We have done Revelations chapters 2 and 3 in a previous series. Uh, this is, uh, that's where all the letters, we'll talk about that in a little while, uh, just to recap. We now get into a sort of mid-series. We won't finish Revelation in this series. It's a big book. Um, but we will, hopefully in the new year, have a third series. But this one starts uh, with myself. Uh, next week you've got Roger, then Peter, finishing on the 29th with Ivor Cooper. Um, and for some reason I've got two chapters to get through. Uh, Roger and Peter have a chapter each. That would be chapters 6 and 7. And then Ivor, bless him, has got chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. You might not want to set the cooker too early on that Sunday, but I'm sure it's going to be a blessing. Okay. So, to recap then, we've completed the letters, chapters 2 and 3, the things present, the issues, the persecution of the uh, churches, and then we get to chapter 4. And chapter 4 introduces things of the future. It starts to talk about the prophetic part of the book. It gives us a nice lead-in to all those things you've heard about in Revelation, the seals, the trumpets, Satan, and the last day's activities, the future of Israel, the 144,000, Babylon, the beast, the false prophet, the two witnesses. We won't get through all of this today, by the way. You'll be glad to know. So whereas chapters 2 and 3 unfold the moral and spiritual condition of the churches in the time of John, which was both relevant to him and, of course, relevant today, I don't know about you, but I found those chapters particularly hard-hitting. Now we're into the, if you like, the start of future events. And these two chapters that we're looking at today, chapters 4 and 5, they help unfold and prepare as by way as an introduction for the next, well, the rest of the book really, chapters 6 through 22. So, if you like, consider these two chapters as a bit of a prelude, a little bit of an introduction as we prepare for what happens in the future. And I want to read them together now. And as I do this, I want you to use all your senses. I want you to not just listen to the words. I want to imagine you're John and you've just been invited through this door and what you see and hear and smell and feel. Use your emotions as we read these two chapters together. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat, on, sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. 
In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, and the third had the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even to look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Standing in the center before the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all of the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And by your blood, you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I don't know how good your imagination is, but that's amazing. 
I mean, I don't even know where to start. And I will go through some stuff today, and we will look at some detail, and we will look at the big picture. But I have to say, there is so much in here. There's no way I can cover it in the next 20 minutes or so. Here's a picture. A chap called Andrew Gray drew this picture. This was his thought of the scenes. I don't think that comes anywhere close. <laughs> but an artist's illustration of what comes out in chapters 4 and 5. I don't know what you think of Revelation. I don't know what you think about the book itself, how far you've studied it, whether you just think, oh, it's just not for me. There's too many pictures, too many questions, too many things I need to look at. I mean, what are these four living creatures? What's the significance of each character? Excuse me, paper's got jammed. What is the sea of crystal? Why an emerald rainbow? What about the precious stones? Is their color significant? Uh, everywhere I look, there's seven this and seven that. Why seven? Why has the scroll got seven seals? To be quite honest, I just want to step back for a minute and not look at that detail. We'll look at it in a little while, but let's just step back and look of the big picture of these chapters. Let's just take it in before we get into too much of the detail. A door has been opened, and John is given a glimpse of heaven. He's allowed to see into the throne room. He sees and witnesses the worship. And then he sees the lamb looking like he has been slain and understands the importance of Jesus and the importance of worshiping Jesus and the power that his death and resurrection has for us. In short, what John sees can be summed up in two words. God wins. The end. In the turmoil of his persecuted church, where he's just had these seven letters to write down, John is allowed to glimpse heaven and is given a taste of how things both should be and will be. It's a vivid picture before him, and he's moved by the Spirit, and he sees an array of color, movement, action, strange pictures that make anything from the Lord of the Rings seem kind of dull. Four creatures surround the throne, representing the characteristics of God, and lead the whole of heaven in worship. Let's just look at one or two of these significant pictures that we get in these two chapters. Who are these four living creatures? Why are they there? Well, first there's a lion. Each of these, by the way, simply represents the character of God. The lion, the most magnificent of beasts. The king of the jungle, they say. He's the leader. It indicates his majesty, his power. Our God is king. We sung about it earlier. Then we have the ox, or calf, or bull. He's the strongest domesticated animal. It's there to say faithful, a good laborer. He's patient. He sticks with us, a great character of God. Then the eagle, the greatest bird. The eagle represents supreme sovereignty and supremacy, soaring the heavens 
emphasizing God's deity, his keen sight, his quick action. And then the one I find most odd, a man, indicating intelligence. The four beings suggest whatever is noblest, strongest, wisest, swiftest, in animated nature of God's creation. And they lead us in worship. Then we get these gemstones right at the beginning here. Get mention of jasper and ruby. Those I find interesting. Jasper was a clear, or is a clear, crystal-like gem. It's like a translucent rock, if you like. Perhaps like a diamond. It portrays purity and brilliance of God's holiness. It reflects the light. It calls our attention to the fact that God is light. A holy God who reveals and unmasks the darkness. Then we have ruby, the blood-red stone, undoubtedly portraying God's wrath and justice, but also indicating his redemptive work of love and grace. In the Old Testament, these stones had a special relationship to the tribes of Israel. Each tribe, and there were 12, had a stone. And these two particular stones went with the first and the last tribe. The high priest would wear, when he went to the altar, for the tribe of Reuben, the first tribe, a stone of jasper. The last tribe, Benjamin, was represented by the ruby. So these two stones in themselves, these two colors, represent the first and the last and everything in between, the whole of God's nation. Then 24 elders. Why 24 elders? Who are they? Well, there's many different interpretations here, but the one I'm most content with, you can talk to me afterwards if you've got a different one, notes that they are the redeemed representatives of the church. You know, in the Old Testament again, David divided the priesthood into 24 orders. There were hundreds of priests and obviously they couldn't all serve at once. It would be chaotic. So, the, so each order was represented by one. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, tells us that his family was the first course of the four and twenty. He was part of, uh, his family was part of the priesthood there. So there was one high priest, 24 orders of priests, with 24 who served as representatives of the whole. Then there were the crowns. They were seen with golden crowns. The Greek there is Stephanos. It's the victor's crown. It's the term that's used throughout uh, the New Testament in Timothy and James. And it's the rewards given to New Testament believers. These are the symbols of God's rewards for our faithful service. But note, they will cast their crowns before him. Why do they cast their crowns before the throne? Though the crowns have been given to them for faithfulness as overcomers, they would see the worship of those living creatures and they would recognize it was all by God's grace and that no crown rightly belongs to us. So we cast it at his feet, giving him the glory and the honor he deserves. So there's 
a few of the pictures that come out in these chapters for us in 4 and 5. Let's get into the main message, the main point. The main point of chapter 4 is worship. What we see here and what is a challenge for us is how worship works in heaven and perhaps, therefore, how we should model our own worship. I have to say this morning, Darren, those songs were brilliant. I mean, it was easy to pick. They come falling out of the book, I'm sure, because of the passage we've got. But wasn't it uplifting to sing those songs? Speaking of glory, worship that's glory, it's that which we should give to God because of who and what God is in his being and in his works. The worship gave honor, the respect and reverence that he deserves. It refers to God's power and his inherent ability and capacity and strength to do whatever he pleases. They, the worshippers, acknowledge God not only as the creator of all things, but the sole motivation for creation. Because of your will, they existed and were created, it says. Creation, we talk about it all the time as uh, being the natural voice and revelation of God. The psalmist in Psalm 19 says, The heaven declares uh, the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of your hands. It's true worship. James, this isn't working, by the way. Did we click forward one? It's not working for James either. Here, catch up. Worship is central to this picture. It's worship that is authentic and totally absorbing. The 24 elders representing the people of all races and tribes who are true worshippers are seen falling to the floor and they prostrate themselves. And the Holy Spirit is present and powerful in the form of flaming lamps. God's power is again seen through lightning and thunder as it was when the Ten Commandments uh, were given on Mount Sinai. Note the words used in the scene of worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They echo that um, verse that we had uh, earlier read to us in Isaiah 6 verse 3. A reminder that God is eternal. What he has always been, he always will be. He never changes. I don't know about you, but we often get bogged down in our lives and in our worship because of where we are in our lives and the now, if you like, of our lives. And our worship can become self-centered. Here, we see worship as it should be. We see worship um, that is totally and utterly absorbed in God and nothing else. It's nothing about me. It's all about him. I don't know how you find worshipping in everyday life, not just when you turn up on a Sunday or a particular meeting. How do you worship personally in those private moments? Well, I encourage you not to lose heart. It would have been easy for John to become depressed and defeatist. There he was, exiled to Patmos. He was unable to help the churches he loved and the challenging situations 
that they faced. What could he do? How would his churches survive? In any age, the force is against us can be overwhelming. Faith can seem so fragile. It can be so impotent against the prevailing powers of the day. How um, natural to lose our heart, yet it would be wrong to do so. Whenever you're feeling down, look at the way worship happens in Revelation chapter 4. It is true worship. Secondly, it's worship that takes God seriously. When we're feeling down and the world is getting on top of us, there remains that open door for those who believe that faith is taking God seriously. We live in a society that says that God isn't there. But we know that he is, and we affirm that he remains not only present, but in control. And on that basis, we live our lives. The Lord reigns. Listen to the song of adoration. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. This simple repetition of holiness is impressive, and it should be impacting. Holiness is of the first importance with God and in the worship of God. In a world where evil is rampant and goodness is mocked, there is one who will not give in to sin or allow his integrity to slip or degenerate. God is and always will be the holy, holy, holy God. Our God is good. He is separated from any and all forms of evil. He is pure, totally pure. He is the Lord Almighty. Real power resides not with evil and deception, but with him, the holy God. The first words that John hears spoken in heaven are the praises. How important is worship in heaven? How important is is our worship in our lives. It plays such an important role in heaven. God wants his followers to be aware of this as when they face what is coming. In giving us this scene of worship, God has given us what we need if the church gathered is to become the church triumphant. What we need is an attitude of worship in all that we face, in all that we do, in all that we go through. So even the tough times, and Darren was speaking earlier with the children and and some of the tough issues that they've had uh, perhaps at school this week, or the first week at school, worship should be our focus. God is and always will be the holy, holy God. Worship is the central theme. pretty much covers chapter 4. Chapter 5. The victory is Jesus. Yes. John gets to see the lion and the lamb. God is firmly established on the throne and then John sees an important scroll with seven seals 
but he's worried because there's no one available that can open the scroll. No one until the lion appeared. He doesn't necessarily, though, see him as a lion. He sees him as a victim, represented as a lamb that still shows the marks of suffering. But he's also the victorious lion with authority and power. It is Jesus the victim, sacrificed to us all, who at this point in the, uh, in the vision takes the center stage. The lamb receives praise and recognition from the elders, a huge choir of angels, and then every living creature everywhere. The elders' song in verses 9 and 10 reminds us that our part in suffering, in, in Jesus' suffering, and our role in revealing his victory on earth he was slain. He gave his blood for all people and those who are Christ will establish on earth the role that he has won as the victorious lion. The war is won. Even if at the time the battle seems to be tough and we struggle and we fight for the truth revealed in Jesus, we are clearly reminded here Jesus was the victim but Jesus is victorious. Normally, events around a throne, and I'm thinking perhaps of things like the opening of Parliament or a coronation, are very well stage-managed. Following years of established protocol, people are carefully instructed what to do, where to stand, how to respond. There is no room for spontaneity or the unexpected, but not here. For the living God acts in ways that leave us open-mouthed in wonder. John longs to know the future of his churches, and in these hard times, he needs assurance that faith, his faith will survive his lifetime. And the assurance he craves is tantalizingly close because he can see this scroll. But the scroll is sealed. Only one person has the necessary qualifications, and he is recognized by all and given his place of the Lion of Judah sounds regal enough, but John sees a full-grown lamb. He is honored, not for the splendor of his appearance, but for his wounds of battle. It is his sacrificial death for humankind that calls forth prayer and praise. He is the conquering lamb. Suddenly, it seems like the curtain is drawn back and the throne room becomes even more crowded as all of created order and creation itself is moved to music and song. Great significance in the preceding passage has been given to the sealed book and the search for the one worthy to open it. When the lamb takes center stage and he takes that sealed scroll, all heaven erupts in a song of praise to the lamb and falls down in worship before him, for he alone is worthy. He alone can bring about the redemption of man and the purpose for which man and earth were created. Chapter 5 is all about victory. Then we, interestingly, come up with verse 8 of chapter 5. Verse 8 commences the description of what occurs in heaven the moment the Lamb, who is alone and in, 
who alone is entitled and worthy takes the book. When he's taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You may wonder, what's the significance of these objects that they hold in their hands? Why a harp and a bow? Sorry, a harp and a bowl. Since Old Testament days, the harp has been used as an instrument of worship. Psalms were often sung to the accompaniment of a harp by choirs of priests and their congregation, and prophets of old prophesied with them. The golden bowls were saucer-like pans used in the tabernacle and the temple. They were filled with a prescribed incense and when ignited sent up an aroma that was pleasing to God. The incense produced an agreeable fragrance and the rising smoke ascended towards heaven's repre- heaven representing prayer and the prayer of the saints rising up to the Lord. When I was preparing this um, this week, it was Wednesday, it was nice and sunny like it is today, and it had got to about lunchtime when I got to this point, and I decided I needed some air. So I took a break, and I decided I'd go for a walk with the dogs, and I bunged them in the back of the car, and we drove on up towards Cranham Woods. And uh, once I finally got past the devastation, which is North Upton Lane at the moment, and I was heading along um, Hucklecote Road, I got behind a very slow car with an old couple in it. Now, I wasn't particularly in a rush. It was a nice day. I had the windows down. But I did want to get back and continue with the work. I just needed a sort of 20-minute walk in the woods. And the dogs were quite keen as well. Anyway, we finally got to a set of lights, and they were turning right, and I was going straight on. And I drew up alongside them at the, the lights, which were red. And I suddenly became very much aware of a smell a sort of perfume. And unless Brockworth had just opened a new perfume factory, I thought, where on earth is this coming from? And I looked to my right and to the car that was alongside me. They also had their windows down. And I reckon I'm pretty certain it was the lady's perfume. It stank. <laughs> Having just read this passage, I got to thinking, I wonder what our prayers smell like. It says here there are sweet fragrance. I mean, I can forgive the guy for driving slow. I'm amazed he wasn't passed out. (laughs) The focus here of the prayers, our prayers, those prayers that we send up that ask that the Lord will return to make things right. All those prayers that you poured out to God and to Jesus um, to ask for his return and bring peace to earth and are gathered up in a and a bowl before God. Every Christian of any age that said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Such is the desire of all of God's people. They are not forgotten. None of them have been lost. They are all treasured in golden bowls. You know, sometimes we forget the relevance of our prayers. On earth, sometimes we consider the prayer meeting not so important. But in heaven, our prayers are precious. So precious, they're brought into the very presence of God himself. 
Prayer meetings might be the least attended meetings, but our prayers are attended to by the living Lord God himself. Singing and prayer are integral, integral parts of Christians' worship experience, both public and private. The two are linked in scripture often. We might have a scratchy voice, not be able to sing properly in key, but through a song and a prayer, we can sing our adoration to Almighty God. Just before we came out, a friend of mine posted on Facebook a song that she had recorded, and I was one of the people in the meeting that she'd recorded. It was around a camp far at camp. It was the song 10,000 Reasons. There was something about that song and hearing it back that just reminded me of how we felt at that moment. Songs of worship are powerful. So let's include both harp and bowl. In other words, let's worship the Lord with singing and in prayer in our everyday lives. Because that's what this points to. Another point that stands out for me is it was all-inclusive. The song of the redeemed extends to the entire world. It anticipates the fulfillment of the Great Commission. God's message of salvation and eternal life is not limited to a specific culture, race, or country. Every tribe, tongue, and people is called to participate. The power of the blood can redeem any person, anywhere, anytime, and that includes you. You are not left out. The whole world is included in this. It's our future and our strength. Verse 10 tells us that the result of our redemption, you have made them into a kingdom and a priest of our, to our God, and they will reign upon the earth, it says. The song of the redeemed praise Christ for his work. Christ, by his redemption and sanctification, has brought into existence a new creation. He who was slain for us, who purchased us with his blood, is gathering us into a kingdom, making us priests and has appointed us to reign. Jesus has already died and paid the penalty for our sin. He's presently making us into a kingdom and into a priest. We are now those capable and becoming ever more capable of reconciling man to God through his work on the cross. Even now we have immediate access to the presence of God that we might worship and intercede as we did and are today. Though we may be mocked and despised for our faith in Jesus, in the future we will reign like him. So we need to worship God and praise him for what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do for those that trust him with their lives. When we realize the glorious future that awaits us, we will find the strength to face our present difficulties. So how do we sum up? John's vision in Revelation is what seems like a parallel realm. Events there seem far removed from our world, yet the opposite is true. What we see in our world is not happening in isolation. God may seem distant, but he isn't. 
Life is a long game. And only at the end will we really understand what's been going on. Thankfully, God does have the big picture. There's much more going on behind the scenes than we realize. We just get a glimpse here of the splendor and glory of heaven to which we have been invited. God desires us to partake of his living presence. He, the eternal one of all glory, on his universal throne of all power and authority for all eternity, so captured your attention in devotion. Sorry, has he captured your attention and devotion as it was to those we read about around the throne? Verse 12 of chapter 5 continues by And the countless angels proclaim, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Like the preceding songs, this one also begins with worthy. He is worthy not for his power and majesty, but he is ascribed such excellence again because of his death for men. This countless host of heaven loudly proclaimed that the the lamb slain from the foundation of the world was worthy of all exaltation. The multitude proclaimed Jesus worthy to receive seven things which could also indicate that they've left nothing lacking. Seven is important. Jesus is worthy to receive power. Jesus is worthy to receive wealth. Jesus is worthy to receive wisdom. Jesus is worthy to receive strength. Jesus is worthy to receive honor. Jesus is worthy to receive glory. And Jesus is worthy to receive praise. Power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, praise. Seven things. Nothing left out. He's worthy to receive all power, for he'll never misuse it. He's worthy of all the world's riches, for his riches are incomparable. He is worthy of all wisdom, for all true wisdom comes from him. He's worthy of all strength, for he is the source of strength and power. How can our words express due adoration to such a great Lord and Saviour? Our most eloquent whispers and shouts, or shouts, fail in expressing the praise and glory due his name. For he who is great has done great things. Then on verse 13, John's perspective pulls back again to an extreme wide-angled lens view. The rolling song of jubilant praise now encompasses the whole of creation. People from every nation are praising God before his throne. This time John doesn't even claim to see anything, but only hear every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and all that is in them singing. Just try to imagine such singing. I've sung with 5,000 blokes in the Royal Albert Hall before. This is way past that. And then to wrap it all up in verse 14, the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down 
and worship. The four living ones add their amen, affirming the praise and worship that's been offered to God, the Father, and to the Lamb. They began the chorus of praise, and now they're there to close it. The 24 leaders again drop to the ground and pour out their worship to him who is worthy. Jesus is worshipped because he is worthy to open the scroll of the destiny of man. Jesus, not Satan, holds the future. Jesus Christ is in control of history and he alone is worthy to set into motion the events of the last days. That is the introduction to this next section of Revelation. And in short, God wins. Amen. Well, staggering verses, aren't they?